It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Bridget Apitropakis is a relatively new climber, and she's supporting her passion for climbing by doing stand-up comedy. Everywhere from her home in Australia, to Denver, Colorado, to, well, it turns out, Everest Base Camp, which is a freaking brilliant idea that was workshopped here on this show. Check out the show notes for all the links to follow Bridget. Coming to Denver since like 2016, every year aside from the pandemic, I've got friends in Denver. I met one of my best friends like 10 years ago when he was traveling in Australia. And uh, basically, it's good to know someone where you don't have to pay rent. But I wanted to stay a bit more permanently uh, when I came back. And I'd like to move permanently, like to get that green card. Denver's kind of like a hub of comedy, though. There's... um a few famous clubs there. Is that, is that kind of what the draw was as well from in addition to just having a free couch to sleep on? Yeah. Um, it's Denver is people, a lot of people don't know this, but Denver is on par with like Chicago and New York with the comedy scene. Denver's really up there. So I've, I've met some of the most talented people that I'll probably ever meet. All the, you know, really good comics pass through those clubs. I think everyone just loves Colorado. What drew you to comedy? We're all familiar with the greats of comedy. How does a young person and a young woman, in the case of you, how do you get into comedy? Um, I wanted to do it for a really long time. I thought I was funny. You know, it's kind of classic. You don't fit in at school. You don't have friends. You use humor to overcompensate. And um, I had a lot of fear of stage fright, so I had to go take a ton of ayahuasca to drop that fear so I could start going on stage again. That was a big part of my process. Um, and then I properly started. I did improv first. Um, and then, you know, just start going to open mics. And then when you go to open mics, you meet other people who run rooms and you kind of get yourself into a circuit. I, it just seems like the coolest job in the world but you know now it's just so problematic i wish i could just had like a really normal steady career path where i wouldn't have to worry about this day it sucks being in the arts truly well there's no uh as far as i know there's no like manual for how to be a comedian um there's lots of manuals about how to rock climb and <laughs> you know lots of people who can like teach you the correct way to do it but i would imagine you'd have to be a student of comedy to just understand what the format is and how it works and there's probably mentors that you have but why, why don't you just tell us like what's that process of going from just being up on stage and bombing to you know having a successful night well that could depend on so many things that could be the audience i could do the exact same 10 minutes in two different areas and one will do really well and one won't do well. And then it's like, okay, maybe I'm not the problem. I'm just not speaking to this audience. Um, but if that happens a few times, you just rewrite or you, if you don't, if you do a joke like three times and it doesn't work, put it on the shelf. If it's the first time you've done it, um, you just rewrite, you know, it's, it's crazy to pinpoint because one word could change a whole joke or one pause or, you know, the way that you pronounce a word. Uh, so it's just like you're, you're just like you're you're reshaping a speech and taking like one small thing out and putting one thing in just like over and over and over again every single night and then that's kind of how you build it but then you kind of get to know areas 
like, you know, some audiences aren't going to be that into certain types of jokes and you shouldn't do them then. Uh, you know, you can double down if you want to, if you like the joke, they might not respond to it. And then, you know, but they might appreciate that. They might appreciate how much they hate the joke, but you love the joke. And sometimes that's what makes it work. Um, but the only formula that truly is, is to do it repetitively every single day. And that's it. And just to not stop doing it. Um, you know, how do you not die when you, when you tell a joke that doesn't like work like don't you die inside a little bit or just yeah totally that's i want to know that too like you where do you, you get in your you get in your car and you drive home and you have a really long think to yourself that's just like what the fuck am i doing with my life uh, i'm never gonna be funny everything is so bad you just you just sit just sit in that and uh you know sometimes you'd need to uh you need to put your suit yourself through that negative cycle of thought to be better the next night but um you know it's it's it sucks but you do become immune to it you know when I do bad I'm just like okay all of those people thought I was shit but I know that I'm good because I've had these good nights and I can hold on to that and those people enjoyed it yeah it's not ideal you you know you're just like it just you sit and you stare at a wall for a bit and that's that's it I don't, I don't, sometimes I cry, but you know, you are getting better from when you suck. You learn what, like a lot more because then you can, and especially if like I record myself as well, uh, to see what the audiences react to or, uh, to see yeah, what I did that was well, and, you know, it's so narcissistic. You're just listening to yourself talk every single day and for what, <laughs> Do you remember that that first time you got the affirmation of like, okay, this is working? I remember the first time, uh, half of the half of the open mic, I had my retainer in, and no one could even understand what I was saying, and I didn't even realize until I took my retainer out, and that was the only thing that got a laugh when I took my retainer out, um, and I just remember, <laughs> I remember the feeling of like my face being so hot, and I was just so embarrassed. It didn't feel good, you know. I was sweating, but I was like, "Oh, I still did it." So, um, you you sent in a a bit that you did um, in Sydney, and we we ran it on a final bit a few episodes back, and and that actually landed you. Sounds like some climbing partners here in the U.S. Why don't you tell us? Because um, you're a new climber, so you you you're kind of figuring out how to find partners and and go out climbing with uh, with different people and so forth. Um what's easier? Is it easier to get on a podcast with a comedy bit and get partners that way? Or is it easier to just like go on online and ask for, for help or go to a gym or something? I haven't tried going to a gym to ask to, you know, to find partners. I think, I think maybe I should. I think, (laughs) I think my, my, might be a better option. Uh, and not definitely not dating apps, you know, found them on dating apps too it didn't go well um like someone that that reached out to me he's from your podcast when you played that he was a much better climber than me and I think it's just like I I, I'm so clear when I say I'm not that good and then they're like oh she's probably being modest and then they go out and they they say I don't know how to tie a rope so they literally have to teach me how to tie a rope (laughs) and how to do my figure eight knot you know (laughs) 
They have to tie me in. They're like, are you joking right now? You're like, you're like, no, I don't know how to tie a knot. But I told them that. Uh, I told them that I, I didn't know how to do that stuff. And then and then it was just like disappointing. For, it's disappointing for everyone involved. It's a very quiet car ride home. You know, Bridge, it's not that hard to, to learn how to tie your finger. Oh, no, I, like, I know how to do it Couldn't now. Couldn't you like level up? I know how to do that okay. now. No, I'm great at it now. But the first time... <laughs> <laughs> the first time it happened, I did not know how to do it. But then I went to mo- I went to the movement gyms. I had a friend that worked there, and um, I learned how to tie my knot. Now I can tie myself in, and you know, I can I can keep myself safe. Chris and I love talking to people like you on this show because we've been climbing for so long, and and we often interview people who are who've been climbing even longer than us. Um, but so we love just hearing the perspective of people who are just like fresh in the sport and just what's your what's your take on climbing like do you love it do you hate it do you think it's stupid what's your how do you feel about the climbing scene and community I love climbing I think climbing is the coolest sport ever I'm obsessed with it I know a lot more than I'm capable of I'm never going to be a professional athlete obviously Um, but I really want to be good at it I think it's such a flex and uh, god every man that climbs is so attractive (laughs) Present company excluded, I'm sure. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. Look, in my age, in my age group, kind of. Sure, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in my dating pool. Uh, yeah, I think it's awesome. I, uh, I, you know, I would love to go climb massive mountains, but I, I, will I? No, but, you know, I just, I can't. You know, there are only so many things you can do, and I'm, I'm going to be 30 soon, and it's like, what 30-year-old is getting into climbing and Tell us about uh, your climbing trip last summer. So you you were in Colorado. Where did you go climbing? I, I went to I went to Eldo. I went. I did. I, I bouldered up around the flat irons, but it's like you know, am I bouldering or am I just like trying to boulder? I still can't tell the difference. <laughs> I went somewhere near Golden. I went on a couple of dates, and each was more disappointed than the last. <laughs> But then I made some female friends and then I could actually learn properly. So I got better as I, as I went on. Um, I just didn't have, I just didn't know enough people to like, take. like I would love to go on a trip where I'm just like staying at a rock for three weeks. I'd learn a lot. And that's a normal thing for climbers to do. Uh, but I, I, I saw some walls. I saw some nice walls. Some of them I couldn't go because it was too late in the day and they were too hot. <laughs> Are your parents funny? Do you get your sense of humor from them? Oh, I don't think so. I don't think my parents are that funny. I think they're very neurotic. Uh, they don't understand my lifestyle. They don't know what I'm doing with it. But uh, <laughs> the phrase they like to throw around is as long as you're happy. <laughs> you don't want to be too happy if you're going to be a comic. I do think that's a general misconception that you need to be sad. Really? I, I, I know that because I, well... I think I think it is that you need to be in a place of darkness to come up with good content for any kind of art, but it is common, and that's where most of of humor comes from. I would love to write uh, light and fluffy, happy jokes. I think you have to be a, a much better comic to write like light, clean material because it's so much easier to pull inspiration from the worst, most absurd things that have happened. There are still things I can't write about and make funny because I'm, I'm not skilled enough to do it. And so much of comedy is relatability. Like some things that other comics have told me is that I'm not relatable enough. And it's like, well, you know, I've only been doing it for two years. I don't need to be that relatable. Like I'll get relatable 
as I go on and meet new audiences and and understand myself more. I just honestly, I don't think anything that you do matters for the first few years of comedy as long as you're just like getting on stage. Nothing you say matters. You probably won't be using all that material forever. It's not going to be like the jokes that really get you somewhere. I'm sorry to say, but I think your new uh, rock climbing habit is not going to make you more relatable in front of audiences. Uh, it depends where I. It depends where I say those jokes. There is a girl that I. There's a girl. Her name is um, Hannah Jones. I met her in Denver. She's a Denver comic. She's so funny, but she has this joke where she's like, "Guys in Denver, um, they're all rock climbers, and the only way to get them attracted to me is if I just like dust myself off in chalk, <laughs> like stuff like that." <laughs> you. I, the, I, definitely not in like a, a city like Sydney, those jokes wouldn't go well, but in Denver and Boulder where everyone climbs and, you know, mm-hmm. has Subarus and Labradors, <laughs> it's, they understand that kind of humor. So in your, in your forays into climbing and, and dating climbing, have you pulled inspiration, the absurdity of the scene, the people, I mean, the way we all comport ourselves from the outside looking in has to be kind of comedic in a lot of ways. Uh, you just see people at these gyms and they're their own breed. You'll, you'll never meet them anywhere else. They're just like these, they're so fit and they're just so attractive. And you're just like, why? They just all, they're all the same. That's it. They're all the same. Do you find, um, you know, people who are that fit and attractive are, uh, come with a lot of narcissism or are they kind of more grounded than you might expect? I think you, I think both, which is why they're so intimidating. I think they are so attractive, but they're all, okay, at least they come off as like humble and acting like they don't know about it. But, (laughs) oh my God, like, thank God I'm funny. The only thing I have to one up these people is that I could tell a joke. That's it. So like, you know, I, I, I'm so insecure everywhere else I go. Like I, I feel uncomfortable climbing around them because they're so fit I feel like I can't get better in a gym because I just can't I don't like going to gyms in general when there are people there like I like to go to the gym at three o'clock in the morning when I'm the only one there because I fail so much in comedy like that's my safe space of failure I don't want people to see me failing athletically um and they've all got their they're like fucking nut bars I think you need another ayahuasca trip to set your mind straight about your climbing mentality <laughs> yeah probably yeah there's, there's just sometimes, there's no life behind their eyes when they're in the gyms. <laughs> that is a very good observation. <laughs> and I feel sometimes like they look right through me. Mm-hmm. I, I've spent like, I, I went to, I was going to the spot, like that was a good gym and that was like a really nice inclusive gym. But then when I would see the kind of people that were there, I would just like hide in the bathroom and just like vape in the, vape in the bathroom. <laughs> I just be like, fuck this, I'm not going out and just... And just the way that you see someone staring at a wall for 15 minutes, they just stare at the wall for such a long time. There is this strange uh, way that people interact with each other in gyms where they are, everyone's really looking at each other. Like everyone's checking each other out and looking at their bodies and watching them climb and seeing how they're doing and stuff. But you're right that nobody is actually making genuine eye contact or trying to interact. It's it's kind of like... I. I don't see you. I'm not here. You're not here. I'm just in my own world focusing on my, you know, performance or whatever, but it, 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 it but you know that 
every time that they notice that no one, no one's glancing their way, they're lo- checking everyone out and like looking them up and down. Like, I think that's every gym in general, but mm-hmm. we'll, we'll stick to climbing. I feel like it would be a lot easier if everyone had a bit more clothes on to start, <laughs> you know, I don't need to see which muscles are being activated. <laughs> I think that you should, um, just start making a like over the top kissy and smoochy faces at, <clears throat> at people when they're climbing. Oh no, I could never. <laughs> I could never. I'm too. I wouldn't know how to approach someone um, at a climbing gym. I'd just stare at them and they'd think like something was wrong. <laughs> 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 I tried to talk to guys, but you know, they're just like so in their own world. And it's like everyone, okay, it's just the amazing thing is like to non-climbers, to people that have never climbed a wall, everything looks impressive. So most of the time they're not even doing anything that great and they're putting it online on their, on their Instagrams and it, it looks so good, but it's not, you know, they're not doing anything that special, but they're making it out like they are and God owes them something. Um, what are your climbing dreams? My climbing dreams? Oh God, what are my climbing dreams? Just to like not die. <laughs> Uh, I don't, I don't even like, I don't understand the grading that much, you know, it's like, it's hard to get into when you didn't grow up with it. But yeah, I mean, but, but what about like just approaching it? What have you learned? You know, are you going to be still hitting those dating apps? Or are you going to try to join a gym? Uh, what, what's your strategy to, uh, to become a climber? Oh, just, uh, God, make friends, make friends, that, you know, that don't want to sleep with you. <laughs> Just make real good, unbiased friends. <laughs> uh, someone told me that, like, when you go climbing, it's always better to go with someone that's much better than you and not be the worst person. You, you want to climb at similar levels as well, though. But I feel like if I go climbing with someone with a similar, similar level, I'll never learn anything. Yeah, I'm strong. That's, I'm very, very strong. I just, like, I'm not, I don't know how to do the routes that well because it's like a brain thing, you know? Uh, when I when I went into it, I had like a lot of athletic strength. I can lift my body weight. I've got good endurance, but it's the it's like you're using other skills, and those are the things I'm not that good at. It, there's no point just like having muscles, and, you know. I would like to learn how to uh, fall better as well. Taking better whips is my goal. That's a good goal. Do you think um, you'd have a pro- have time for a proper road trip? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think that's where it would really come together for you. Yeah, where should I go? Is a proper road trip with some ladies. Oh, yeah. yeah um, well, if you know yeah. anyone, if you know any females <laughs> that would uh, tolerate me in their van. I think that we can find that. I, th- I, Yeah, totally. I mean, people listen. I think you'd be an amazing travel partner. Oh, thanks. Just keeping it, keeping it alive in the van on those long drives. Yeah, I love that. For sure. I would love to like live in a van and just in general. I'm probably never going to be a property owner unless I marry like a lawyer or something who already has a house. Like the only way I'm going to get a house if I marry someone that already has a house. Uh, So I'm just going to have to like stick to a refurbished bus and see where that goes. (laughs) Build a little shower in there with a bag, like like a camp shower. (laughs) Just face it. That's going to be my, the reality, my reality for the rest of my life. That's the climber dream right there. Yeah, I know. I think people get lost in that climate dream. I think people are just some climbers truly have no social skills. Some need, climbers um, that I've met. You need you need the lawyer who has the house but also has the 
the van with the shower in it. Yeah, I've heard that God Denver is Menva. There's so many of them. <laughs> what what advice right. could you give? A, what advice could you give me as a new climber? Make female friends. Yeah, I think that would be a good one. I think that obviously, you know, skill set. You got to have a good soft soft uh, catch. But yeah, I think I think you know just kind of couching the the dating climbing thing like get get away from oh, absolutely no get some i don't actually need to date who can who can circle circle the wagons around you and 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 get you up yeah to no speed. totally i'm not actually i i i i'm fine with it i don't need to date i'm sorted in the dating aspect <laughs> but you know it's a funny thing to talk about from when i when i was there and actually like was dating yeah i think also just anyone who it seems like they're trying to impress you with how much they know about climbing. Probably doesn't know shit. I know that. It's just, it's so confusing. It's so confusing. Those You, you don't know, truly. You, you don't know. Yeah. If only there was a podcast out there that could teach us how to navigate these treacherous waters. Oh, this is a great podcast. This is my favorite podcast. <laughs> I don't know what anyone's talking about half the time, but I love the Everest episodes. More of that. Those are so good. Um, Andrew, you posted something on Twitter recently about uh, about the artist that uh, that showed how trashed Everest was, and oh, he yeah. was like, "Oh, no one should climb this for fifteen years." What are your thoughts? Because I kind of agree. Mm. Um, I don't. I think it's a kind of silly to give the mountain a rest or I, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> like, it's a mountain. It doesn't need like a rest. Um, but yeah, I think Everest is a shit show and, and probably should be cleaned up at some point. How, how do you think that would happen? Like, how do you think we can think clean it up? Bring a blowtorch to melt the dead bodies off of the, that are frozen <laughs> to the rocks um, and all the other garbage. Maybe just we'll just wait for the earth to get warm enough and it'll all just melt away and uh, and then it'll be clean again. Yeah, can't wait. I love an extinction level event. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like the all these companies that have banked on it for the last 50 years ought to, ought to maybe pull together and go clean it up, you know, mm-hmm. um, as sort that's of payback. That's a much better idea for, than extinction for the, level. For the hype. But, uh, I mean, I get the rest thing in a way, but it has to be a rest with also, you know, every time they have a cleanup on it and they go and pull a bunch of stuff down, it's only like another, you know, six months before the same amount of shit and more just like reappears, you know, there it's, it's a completely like Sisyphean, you know, endeavor to try to clean it up while people are still using it. And so I guess that's kind of where the rest thing comes in. It's like, yeah, just like everybody get the fuck off the thing. Let's clean it up and then let's let's like leave it alone for a little bit. But that's never going to happen. There's too much money involved. That's that's the whole thing with Everest. It's all about the money. That kind of has to be. I mean. For, for Nepal. Yeah, exactly. Because then you feel bad and yeah. their economy will fail. Right. Yeah, totally. I mean, that that's it's when I say it's about the money, I'm not just talking about Western guides. I'm talking about the country itself. I mean, that's this gigantic amount of money that they pull in. So I don't know. It's really up to them. Yeah, it used to be seen as something that's so great, and now it's just sad. Mm-hmm. What about you, Bridget? Do you want to climb Everest one day? I would like to. I well, I'd like to do base camp because I think I'd like. Yeah, I think I'm capable of base camp. 
I'd like to do more of that kind of uh, like solo trekking, like a multi-day or week uh, on a really big mountain. That's probably more of the climbing that I'm capable of than hard pitches. I could see a, a comedy scene being you know, set the, up in. Yeah, I was about to say that's like that's like a goldmine right there. Like, <laughs> oh, you reckon? <laughs> I mean, a, a yeah. freaking yeah, a you know, a big North Face geodome, uh, you know, base camp tent, and string up a few lights, <laughs> and you know, you could definitely fly in a, a small PA. You know, we're, climbing's all into like the world's youngest, oldest, highest, fastest thing. I mean, the highest comedy uh stand-up comedy show ever ever done could be done at base Dude, camp by you stop everything you know this is the best idea we've ever had on this show <laughs> this is it <laughs> yeah, don't do I, anything else not, until this happens it's not expensive to get to nepal from australia i think it's like 400 dollars round trip no it's 800 dollars round trip this is done how are we not how did we not start with this the the I mean, you need to do a residency at, at Everest Base Camp. Yeah, I'll just be like, like three sets. Like, what to do with dead bodies? <laughs> <laughs> hey, do you think? Do you think an animal got in here? <laughs> Is that someone's foot? <laughs> I would love to. I would truly. If I, I mean, <laughs> I can. I. It's not. I. The material writes itself. Uh, Ideally, I'd be going on an expedition. You know, I'd pay like what, like you know, X amount of dollars to go in and go in a group and just ravage them with humor in the middle of nowhere. They'll have no choice. I'll Stockholm syndrome people into thinking that I'm funny. <laughs> that would be amazing, amazing. Because you hear about like all the disco kind of scene up there and stuff like this total debauchery. I didn't know that. Then there's like three. Oh yeah, yeah. Like three nights a week. There's there there's you know comedy. Three sets like just banging it out over on one corner of it's the base. It's basically like Denver. Oh, I think it, I think it'd be huge. Uh, can you get yeah, microphones I mean, there? I would easily. Are you kidding? They have like so much crap oh, up hey. there. Just <laughs> chopper it in. This is us. Uh, I mean, if you want to meet a climbing lawyer who has a van, they you're going to meet one up there for sure. I mean, isn't it just doctors and lawyers that climb yeah. that thing? Yeah, but, you know, I also find doctors and lawyers a bit sociopathic, so climbing would make them insufferable. Anyway, I'm going to pull some strings. I'm going to talk to some people, so start writing some. Yeah, cool. Everest. I can get there. Everest. I can get to Everest pretty much whenever. I just need like a week's notice. You know, I also don't own a North Face jacket, so I will have to go and find one so I can fit in. Thomas Huber is one of the most accomplished and beloved climbers of all time. Along with his brother Alex, Thomas helped pave the way for modern free climbing on El Capitan with Freerider, Golden Gate, and a host of other first free ascents. He's a PLA door recipient with the first ascent with Ian Wolf for the North Pillar of Shivling. And his new book is in Den Bergen ist Freiheit. In the mountains, there is freedom. Actually, we've met before, you and I. Uh, yeah, I, I remember. To, I used to climb walls back in the day and uh, uh, in Yosemite in like the mid 90s. And, um, okay. You know, Climbed with Kevin Thaw and and uh, uh, yeah and Mark yeah. Sinat and like uh-huh. like okay. uh, Kevin and Mike and I or Kevin and Mark and I did the second ascent of the reticent wall. 
back ah, okay cool so cool yeah so yeah, yeah. you're around and um we hung out just a little bit i think you actually gave me a ride somewhere one time um so yeah but that was a long time ago <laughs> and it was a uh, so we are full in the uh, can run into the topic because uh, yosemite was such a one of my most intense time in in my in my life as a climber and uh but i've I shift, or we all stone monkeys, I think, we shift this this uh, feeling to be a real stone monkey to another new Yosemite. And the new Yosemite in the world is now El Chantin in, in Patagonia. So where every year the whole climbing community comes together. And we are always talking about walls and, and, and climb, but the walls won't be as good as uh, the people has to be around. The people makes the walls so great. So the community makes the walls so great. And that's that's all about my climbing life. And Yeah, it was such a historic time. You know, when you and Alex were there in Yosemite, I, I reference it all the time to, to this, you know, you guys very much helped precipitate this change in attitudes towards walls that happened, I think, during those years where you know, the speed thing arrived very heavily, um, you know, obviously all the free climbing that sort of got ushered in after there was, there was a break, you know, after Lynn did the nose, it seemed like there was a break and people yeah, were looking you, at the walls to free them. And then you guys showed up. Yeah. You have to see it. There were the time of the stone masters. And then I think all the Americans, they, they were a little bit in a total I don't want to say a wrong direction, but not in this direction where it's at the moment the progression in climbing. So they went into aid, hard aid, speed aid, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 then we came, and then uh, we continued the the way what Lynn just started, just showed, right. but you didn't took it, and then we went. Every year, because suddenly, uh, finally, we we realized that a cup is such a playground of uh, it's a, it's a beauty. It's one of the best walls in the world. So there is no approach. You go there, and from the ground, you you are there, and then you can uh, discover there is a free landscape. The whole wall is free. Because there are no free climbing routes, only the nose and the salathe, and then we start to to uh, to search, to explore, and that was the uh, it was such an amazing, crazy time, and then suddenly uh, ninety eight, it starts something because uh, we realized that we can't do our project within in in twenty days in the valley. Uh, because you are only allowed to stay, uh, you know, ten days. So we were always illegal in in Camp Four. So we create somehow this ooh, 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 this <laughs> monkey call to to show where we are in the woods and uh, or if there's some danger. And uh, with this communication, <laughs> with this monkey call. It starts the community of the stone monkeys. To be honest with you, in that case, I'm super proud of. And 
it's a little bit a shame of uh, a Valley Uprising because I I like this movie a lot. It's it's a great piece of history, but what they and this is what I don't understand why they they cut away our history of stone monkeys uh, mm. with a huge respect to Alex Honnold and Tommy Cardwell, uh, but they are not the stone monkeys. They are the new generation. As the stone monkeys was created by Alex me. Uh, Ivo Ninov, uh, Cedar Wright, um, Chango Chuck, Dean Potter, and all these guys, uh, because we were the dirtbags. And Tommy and, and, and Alex never stayed in the valley. So they just uh, camped outside. They went in, climbed something, then they went outside again. And we were the dirtbags, the Bavarians. <laughs> yeah, so I um just to underscore all of that, I was I started climbing in Yosemite right in the early 2000s and um and we interacted back then Tomas about I met you and your brother Alex in Camp 4 and um it left such a huge impression on me to be able to I mean cuz you guys were the superstar climbers at the time, you know, you probably don't think of yourselves in that way, but you you were and you were to me and um just to be able to share campfires and stories and, you know, go bouldering it by headlamp at night with, um, with oh, you yeah. guys was so, was oh, so, wow. so fun. And it was, it was just like, um, you know, cause there were other professional climbers in Yosemite at that time, but they were a little more standoffish or, you know, kept to themselves. But you and your brother are men of the people, you know, you were, you were there with, with the community and you seem to really enjoy, um, that, ability to just interact with people and, and create the community, create the stone monkey community. And, and it was, that was just like a very, um, I just thought it was the coolest thing, you know, it was the coolest thing to be able to, to hang out with you guys. To be honest with you, I thought really, ah, oh, why we are so late. Uh, I want to be also in the, in the time of the stone masters with Jim Bridwell and, uh, mm. but, but somehow, uh, and that was, it's very strange that we from Bavaria, we came over first with uh, just a little English. And there were some very funny things going on when we had the first slideshow in the mountain, uh, in this mountaineering shop. We had a slideshow and then we learned, we used the language what we learned from the climbers. And we used, suddenly somebody is, was something was written on the cartoon don't use so much swear words. And I didn't know what swear words means because we said, oh, that was fucking great and a fucking amazing move we have to do. And then the people said, oh my God, what? he's using the F word. And I said, yeah, why not? Because you said this in every sentence. So we learned from you. <laughs> and that was so funny though. And we were so grounded because we are part of the community and you see us as super uh, as stars but we we were just climbers who are like you and and the others and mm -hmm. and and I remember wow the time in camp 4 when when I climbed on midnight after I think five or ten beers, the midnight lightning in the headlamps, and, <laughs> and then the range came. We were running away and, and <laughs> rebirth channel sessions. Wow! Yeah, yeah. It was the rebirth so we were, simulator. Oh yeah, and it, yeah. we were rebels. 
We were real stone monkeys, I have to say. We were sometimes a little rude. Amy McNeil. We were kind of amazing community and it was very intense. And I thought in that time, I want to be a stone monkey, but now I realize it was a very intense time that, that, that time from 98 to 2007. And the very strange thing from 2007 on, we, yeah, we cut away and uh, mm. we never come back because somehow everything changed. Then Tommy and Alex showed up and there was a totally different attitude in the valley. I think Ivoninov went away. He was also a very key person. Chango Chuck get kicked out from the valley. Um, there were so many changes. Everything was more official. And yeah, and now we we create, I think, a new place in the world. Uh, we shifted to uh, El Shanten. And, uh, and to be honest with you, in El Shanten, the stone monkeys are coming together every year now. And what I see, I climbed, for example, all the peaks. Just one peak is missing in Fitzroy and, and Cerro Torre range but I will come back again and again. And it's the mountain, it's the reason, but the the heart is the, the community. Mentioning the, the stone monkeys coming together, but of, of course we've lost some of them, uh, you know, some of these key members to that little tribe. Um, you know, can you maybe just talk a little bit about the memories of those guys like Dean and Stanley and, and um, others? Talk about your feelings of loss a little bit there. Dean and uh, Stanley, they went down to Chalten uh, and um, Dean inspired me, especially Dean mm -hmm. inspired my life a lot. And uh, and he he showed me that <clears throat> climbing is not uh, a sport, so climbing is art and uh, it's even more. And the loss of Dean, it was a deep impact in my heart, but also in the heart of the whole community. To be honest with you, I think Dean was not the strongest climber because there are way stronger crack climbers, way stronger, uh, way stronger climbers than Dean. But Dean was such a character. He was one of the top characters in the, he was one of the mental leaders, um, of our community. And he, of course, he was very shy, but seems to be he's carrying a huge secret with him and uh so uh everybody's curious about the the thinking of dean and i i, I watched once dean's sideshow and i have to say it was one of the best stories i i see on stage it was dean's and it was very simple but his way how he talks maybe english is maybe a better language it's more uh it's must moose than German, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but it was it was amazing. And Dean, I wrote my whole my whole story now in a book, uh, and Dean has a huge part in this book, the whole stone monkey scene, and yeah, and also Stanley. And uh, when I had to search for Kyle and Scott, it was also the same uh, situation where I put everything into all my knowledge into the into the possibility to help people. 
there was also something happened uh, last year on Cerro Torre. Maybe you know this, um, what happened on Cerro Torre with Cora Pesque and Tommy Aguilo. They climbed the north face and then suddenly they get hit by an avalanche. And there was the climbing community. We went up and then we forced together as a team and then we are climbing with highly risk up to the snowfield. And uh, we couldn't help Cora. This is what we knew because he was higher up and he couldn't move again, uh, anymore. But we took down uh, Tommy and with our with our action, what we did, we we brought back a father for a little son. And uh, like what my brother said, hey, Thomas, you achieved so many peaks, but that was maybe one of the most important peaks you 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 reached you brought back life and and this is what we always have to think about we always talk about uh reaching summits uh, achieving great goals but the main thing is always uh that you come back alive and and talk a little bit more about the process why i wrote a book because i had a huge fall uh, in my home, maybe somebody read uh, about 60 meters. I broke my skull. I was so lucky to survive. And then I went to a talk show and talk about the story. And then a journalist said, hey, your story is so, so mind-blowing. And it gives so much courage to people never give up. And uh, you're, you're here now. And you still want to do that. So uh, just tell us why you want to do this uh, further. And then they said also, of course, you, we have journalists, uh, writers who you just have to sit down and talk and then we write everything down. And then I said, no, if I write something down, I have to do by myself because writing is a process. And, uh, either way, my, my skills in writing, I had not the best, how you say, marks in the school. Uh, mm -hmm. Grades, uh, grades, grades in the school. Yeah. My German was really bad, but as I said, writing is a process, and I, for me, I try to achieve the impossible, to to make the impossible possible, and I start writing, and and it was an amazing time because I have to, I can reflect my life in a totally different way. What was important, and it starts really from my father to my childhood why I I'm a climber and why I'm achieving these goals and it has a reason so your book is called um, in the mountains there is freedom is, is that roughly the translation I'll spare you the listening to me try to pronounce it in German um, but freedom as you just alluded to is is an important part of your life it's an important part of it sounds like it's part of the reason it was to why Yosemite lost lost interest in Yosemite, maybe less freedom, but more restrictions and so forth. So tell us about freedom as a general theme in your life and in this book. What does, um, what does that word mean? Why is it, why are you naming your book freedom and what, how does that relate to your climbing? I really realized about freedom when there was the pandemic, uh, because there were so many restrictions and always, if you have restrictions, then you, you feel that you lost your freedom 
And uh, when you go in the mountains, then all your senses have something, space. Then you can breathe. And then you look down to the valley and say, fuck down in the valley, all the restrictions. And here up in the mountains, it's so, you can breathe. And it's so free. But that was only the moment when I feel the freedom or as a kid in the, in the mountains. And then it was the moment when uh, the publisher decide, okay, we call it Mountains Freedom, or in the mountain there is freedom. But finally, I realized during the writing uh, that actually we climbers, we are not free. Not at all, because we are, we are caught by our ego all the time, because uh, we see the line, and yes, we want to do the line, and then you reach the summit, your chains are are open, but it's not really freedom. You just have the relief that you finally did it. And then suddenly I, I realized that this freedom, what I'm searching, I don't get it if I climb a line. And, and suddenly I realized that after writing and writing and writing that the real freedom it can be also be at home. The real freedom, it can be everywhere. It has to be when you're uh, humble and relaxed and, uh, and when your ego is not pushing you too much that you have to do it because if you don't do it, then you're lost and that's wrong. I, I wrote this in my book that, that I think we are all blind when we go in the mountains, when we want to see the lion, we look in the mirror of our own ego. And we have to have the strength to crash down the mirror. And then suddenly we see the lion again. And then we feel the danger. We feel what we can do. We feel everything. We, f we feel also the, yeah, how far we can go. And then you're more free because then you're a hunter a hunter in your in the mountains and and this freedom you get only when you're when you get this in your heart this is what i i realized during the writing yeah that that's a very profound insight and um i, I really resonate with what you just said um i'm i'm curious i just started thinking about your role just as a mentor i mean there's so much wisdom in what you just imparted here when you're going down to Patagonia in this kind of new Yosemite, this new, you know, monkey culture, um, in down in Patagonia, you know, that's a serious place as, as you just alluded to, there's life and death, um, and there's no easy rescues and, and so forth. And a lot of that, what you just said, I think are words that I think a lot of young alpinists probably, you know, really hungry alpinists who are ready to go do the hardest route of their lives in Patagonia could stand to listen to do you find yourself as a mentor um when you're down in patagonia now do you do you share some of your wisdom that you just imparted to to you know to the young the young versions of yourself that you meet down in el chaltan yeah we do we do um and uh we were we are talking a lot uh talking a lot with the young generation to the people because uh we see some Brazilians, they say, ah, oh, we want to free solo uh, 
Franco Argentina and I said hey just be be careful what you're saying uh, you have to know even if you're on rope this is what I when I climbed uh, the half of the moonwalk traverse with the young Pedro Odell 19 years old super talented climber and I said to him because he's running out in the 6B terrain like uh, 50 meters and I said that's bullshit because uh you are free solo in this in this area because if something happened and you break your uh, uh, something on your leg, uh, your femur, then you're maybe dead because there is no helicopter coming. So if you have the gear on your on your harness, just use it. Just put it inside. Be safe because it's also for your partner. Safety is all about in Patagonia, and you have to go totally different, even more secure than in uh, in the Karakorum. I think Patagonia is one of the most sketchy places in the world. And it's a big problem at all because we have this guidebook made from Rolo. It shows perfect climbing, the pictures, the social media. Everybody wants to go there. And, and we try, who are experienced, we try to to be mentors for all the climbers to say, you have to know what you do. And if you know that you are in the deathly risk, then you know you're doing right. Because uh, I think that's in our, in our body, we will try to survive everywhere. But if you think you can easily make it, then it's getting really sketchy. I don't know if I explained right. Uh, yeah, that do you was understand? Great. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I mean this is the age old dilemma or where where you know an older climber, a climber who's been there who's done that, you know, has this wisdom a lot of times it has to do with yeah, being safer and make it through. You have this whole life to live and you don't know, but then you must also realize that you're talking to yourself when you were 20 and you were 22 and you're 23 and so you know, part of your wisdom is must be to realize that how, in a lot of ways, how hard it is to get through to to this twenty two year old, you know, guy that just wants to crush everything because that was you. That was, you know, yeah. I was also yeah, so it's, super. It's kind of like this. Yeah, this it's just kind of this. Uh, like I said, it's an age old thing where the the wisdom bounces off. You know, you gotta like realize that like you're like talking to this. You know, someone who's just yeah lots of fire you know there there are a few things uh first of all i was also lucky in my life yeah. maybe our first first descent it was nearly a free solo uh when i was 17 <clears throat> uh i didn't know how hard it is uh finally it went to the grade 6b but it was a slap and if there will be no holds i will be uh already it will be finished uh in the earlier time so i was super lucky but I, I was really crushing in that moment uh, because uh, we thought it has to be like that to be a real mountaineer. And that's uh, and this is after a while I learned so much. And, and one thing I learned from my my friend Ismail, he's, he's a Balti and he's always with me in, uh, in the Karakorum when I climbed there. Uh, and he said to me after I failed again on the late top one, uh, he said, hey, Thomas, no worries. Look, these mountains, they are so beautiful. And he said then 
because I was sad, again failing. I failed four times there. And then he said, look, Thomas, with no life, there will be no more these mountains. And with life and happiness, you can do whatever you like. And this is the biggest wisdom in life at all. He's like a, a monk or a, 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 yeah, a yogi or something. These words are come from God because we have time. Life is beautiful. And there's no wrong decision in the mountains you take when you're down in a life. Then you always make the right decision. Always. It's never a wrong decision. The wrong decision will be if you will be up there forever. Maybe you're not lucky, but maybe you made a wrong decision. But when you're back down and you're maybe you're not so fired in that moment, and then you say, Oh, fuck, why, why I didn't go? It was never a wrong decision because you have another chance for sure. Because life gives you another chance. Let's talk a little bit more about your book because um, one of the things that I'm hoping comes out of this podcast is that there's a huge publisher out there listening who wants to Hope. bring it into uh, to us Americans and translate it into English um, selfishly so I can read it. Um, but tell us about some of the reception that you've gotten so far from um, from you know people in Germany who've read it. Yeah, it comes out. Uh the 1st of December and uh, people were really excited to read it. And, and then I was waiting uh, the first, yeah, the first receptions and critics. And, uh, and at the end I was super happy what the people are saying because it's so easy to read. It's so grounded. It's like uh, people said they feel to be with me on the rope. And uh, I create rooms like you smell, you see Yosemite, you feel this valley or you you feel the cold of Antarctica. And uh, it goes through all the up and downs, the positive and the negative thing about the loss of our friends, the reason why we do it. After a while, the first part of the book, it's kind of story of my younger childhood and then we come as a rebels into the valley and suddenly it starts that we lost more and more from our stone monkeys and then i will reflect myself even more why i'm doing that and at the end i come to a point that there are only two two decisions what you can do Either way, you finish with climbing because it's way too dangerous when we always push the limits. And, and if I finish, then the, all the stories, what I, what I wrote in this book, they will be gone because all the Dean stories will be lost in the, in the past. Or I still climb and then these stories continue because we just follow the path of our monkey friends. And, and to be honest with you, and this is really true, I, I hear the voices of Dean, of hans and David still in the mountains. I, I feel the spirit and I just, I don't want to lose the spirits. So that's the reason why I'm still charging myself, 
even if I'm 56 years old, but I love to, to be in the mountain. And, uh, and I also wrote that I never, because people say we, we had so many times over the limit. And I said, no, 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 we never go over the limit. Just with our strengths, we push the limits because if you go over the limits, then you're, then you're not living very long. And I don't want to say Dean went over the limit, but he, there was a bad moment, a black moment of Dean. And uh, yeah, or maybe it was the time he has to leave because he already told us everything, what he knew. It was his time. And uh, as you see here, <laughs> it's he's here. That's my my wall. It's Shefflo, uh, Dean, Hanser, Kyle. Everybody's here. That's my little wall of um, in the back, uh, all about my life. And uh, it's also an art of Renan when we did the, the speed record. And this wall is also, I wrote this wall into, into my book. And um, at the end, when I wrote it, it took me three years because I wrote every single word by myself. And it's very grounded. It's written by a stone monkey. You can read it. So sometimes a little dirty. And uh, and then at the end... Do you use the F word? You use the F word, Thomas. Yes, I use the F word. <laughs> and this book is also not gendered. This book is also not gendered. It's really like it is. Mm-hmm. And um, then they said, how you can make it in that time? Uh, and I said, oh, I tell you something. I make no difference between a woman and man about gays and lesbians, about uh, which color people are, because there are only two humans in the world. There are humans and assholes. That's all. <laughs> yeah. So for me, are uh, all all equal. It's beautiful. <laughs> And beautiful. <laughs> and at the end, at the, at the end, they were they were saying, "Okay, the book was finished." And and uh, okay, it's it's always writing a book. The most important thing is to start the book. How you start the book? So if you start with your with when you are born, or because this is maybe too uh, too boring, and how you end the book. And I start the book with the line, my line of life. And then I describe the line. I'm sitting in front of Leitok 1 North Face. And then I said that was the idea, belief in the magic of the moment of life. That every single moment is, is important in life. Sometimes you take it or sometimes you lose it. But when you take it, it brings you to the way. And the reason why I'm sitting in front of this line I have to tell a great story and the story is the story of my life. And it starts with my birth and uh, it starts also with the story of my father. He was a really talented climber. He was crushing it also to the edge, but finally survived. And uh, so he found a, uh, a woman, got married, and then I get born. And then it comes my brother and... Uh, our father showed us the mountain and then we get to the mountain and then we 
yeah, discovered ourselves. And I have to really say thank. I'm so thankful for our father that he opens only the door of the mountains and we went by ourselves. And this is the whole story, even more written in this book. And then the end of the, the book, it's, um, it's an asado in Argentina. Actually, I want to end the book in, in my home because the home is very important. But somehow I was writing the last lines. Uh, actually, I thought, okay, I make the asado and then I, I will travel home and finish the book at home. And then I, somebody else was uh, uh, writing because there were words it comes out so so perfectly and then wrote the last sentence I made a dot and then I know after three years that's it there's no more word needed I said everything and it ends in Patagonia and I have to say it ends actually on the other side of the world and I have to say I wrote a lot about my home because home is so important because that's uh, your roots. But to be honest with you, home is one of my homes and actually my home is the whole world. We are neighbors, we are friends and spread it all, all over the world. So my home is in Bertus Garden, but it's also in Patagonia and, and I'm very happy to, to end it in my second home on the other side of the world. And then the publisher said, oh, Thomas, now the very last thing you have to do, because we don't have a, f a guy who read the foreword, like Reinhold Messner. Normally you put Reinhold Messner in the front, writing some words. <laughs> and they said, they, they really said, you don't need it because this book is so intense that there is no foreword uh, needed because it's a story itself about climbers about climbing community and I guide through the history of climbing my life and now okay you want to dedicate the book to your family to your father and then I was thinking and then I realized it's for my brothers and sisters and the brothers and sisters who are spread out in the whole world for the stone monkeys and I wrote this book for the stone monkeys and to be honest with you I said to my publisher because we they were working to find an English publisher but it's at the moment very hard and I said I didn't wrote this book for the German community no I wrote it for for the community and uh, please try to find an English publisher because if it's not translated in English, this book is lost. Because um, I really want the Winky, Chongo, all my climbers have the possibility to read it. And uh, even enough. And if it's in English, it's in the world. So you talked about dedicating a big part of it to Dean, and, and I'm sure there's, you know, there's many, many of your partners and the people we admire that come up in the book. Uh, but I think, you know, one of the things that's probably most unique and distinct about um, your climbing life is your partnership with your brother. And um, I've noted in history, like, you know, we have these amazing partnerships that have, have 
become mythological, like Todd and Paul, Todd Skinner and Paul Piana and, you know, Mark Hudon and, and uh, Max Jones and, you know, these great partnerships. But I think yours stands out as, is like, you know, one of the most prolific, the strongest bond. I mean, you must reflect on what it means that you're, you're, one of your strongest climbing partners is also blood. It's also your brother. What does that mean to you? And and did this writing of this book and reflecting on the relationship with Alex make you learn anything about that? Yeah. And I think it's a very honest story. And uh, of course, uh, you see always the Hoover brothers as a really, really strong team, but it's uh, sometimes uh, the reason why we are, we are getting so powerful was also because sometimes we are competitive too. Mm -hmm. And and we also have, and this is, I wrote also in the book, the big problem was that we are brothers and we are doing the same. And we have both long hairs. And so we are, we are compared (laughs) from the outside. Yeah. Right. Who, who is the better expedition climber? Who is the better climber? Who is doing this and who is the... So uh, I think for us, it will be more easy if I will be Thomas Huber and uh, Alex Müller. And now there will be... <laughs> and, and we are friends. And so sometimes the conflicts of our brothership comes sometimes from the outside, created by the outside, because they want... They always put us uh, in scales. Who is better? Who is whatever? Uh, who is smarter? Who is more crazy? Whatever. And uh, but through all, we we learned so much about our strengths and weakness. And this is what I really want to reflect. Very honest. They are amazing. What you said. We are a very strong team because it's our blood, and we. We went. We, we pushed many boundaries or many, many limits forward, but we also had a really hard time. And and uh, and it's like where is light? There is also darkness. Uh, but it was not a, a uh, humongous darkness. But there was. We also had hard times together. And uh, at the moment, I realized that. It's not only necessary that I climb with my brother because we are totally different. As you you know me, maybe I'm more crazy, more uh, not so rational. I'm more emotional and Alex is more a strategic person. Strategic, yeah. Strategic person. Yeah. Uh, but together... Because we are so different, so our 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 boundary is so gets so strong. Uh, so Thomas, usually when people write a book, it um, tends to signify that their their career's over. They're hanging up their harness <laughs> and their rope and <laughs> moving on to uh, you know other things in life, but, um, you just alluded to the fact that you're going back to Patagonia. You went to Meru, I think last year, um, you continue to go to the mountains and doesn't seem like you're, you, you have any signs of slowing down. So what, what is your thoughts on just, uh, climbing going forward over the next 56 years? I think I wrote the book because there are so many stories to tell and, uh, 
And actually, as I, I said, it was the accident uh, that some people said, hey, you give so much power to the people. Also with my slideshows, uh, we want to read uh, what you what you are saying. And then I, I decide by myself, okay, I start writing. And it took me a while to, to bring everything down in in actually uh, in nearly 400 pages. But it's not the end of the story. And in the end of the book, it, you, you know exactly that it will continue. And for sure, I'm not a typical German guy who are always planning in the future what we are doing. And uh, there are many journalists or people are asking me uh, how long you want to climb, how long you want to, to, to crushing so hard or pushing the limits and I said always I don't know because you you never know how long you can uh, do that and now at the moment I know I can so I do uh, what will be tomorrow I will see and when the tomorrow is here I will do the best to make the tomorrow a great day again so that's my strategy of life and uh, and Always make the best what you have. Well, folks, though that seemed like the perfect ending to an interview with Tomas, the Rope Guns over at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast are being treated to 20 more minutes of banter with Herr Huber. We discuss his attempts on Pitch 19 on the Salathay, his music and band, his impressions of the free solo of his root, Freerider, and more. Get that and other epic bonus material by becoming a rope gun today at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. On today's final bit, we are featuring a special song from Tomas Huber's stoner rock-inspired band, Plastic Surgery Disaster. The song, Brothers and Sisters, is dedicated to his clan of far-flung stone monkeys, past, present, and future. You'll hear Tomas on the mic.
you've just finished another episode of the Runout Podcast. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Kalous, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, 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 no. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> no, pod.com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money.